Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that down through the ages of the church, you have been constantly caring for us, girding us up where we have faithfully followed you and reforming us where we have gone astray. Lord, by your spirit, let us know the unity we have and the ultimate price your son paid for us and for all of creation. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is a pleasure to join here with you again today and uh, have the privilege of getting to bring the sermon. Uh, as you know, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed. Father Sean's been leading us through that. Uh, and today, it is my duty to talk with you a little bit about the part of the creed where we confess the Holy Catholic Church. I'm not sure what you think when you confess this every week. Sometimes it makes me sad because I know there are many reasons to doubt our unity or holiness. Other times I confess it's entertaining. That sounds odd, but uh, I talk to a lot of Christians at work from different traditions and I repeatedly find myself in a situation that amuses me. So let me explain. Before I left my company's home office in Pittsburgh to move here, I used to talk with two friends, Todd, who is in the Baptist tradition, and Sam, who is a very educated layman in the Roman Catholic tradition. I would talk to them together and separately, and inevitably, when I was with one of them, Todd would say something like, I don't know, Mark. I'm not sure he's a Christian. And Sam would say, he doesn't seem to get it, Mark. Do you think he's a Christian? Yet, both of them were more than happy to talk to me and call me a Christian in the Anglican tradition, a brother in Christ. Often, we as Anglicans find ourselves oddly standing somewhere in this no man's land, somewhere between Rome, that is, Roman Catholic tradition, Jerusalem, the Orthodox traditions, and Protestants. Anglicans have so frequently been in that position that our tradition has been called the via media, the middle way, between all other sections of the church. That particular ability for our tradition to sit uncomfortably in the midst of the church is God's gift to us in the Reformation. It is his, his mercy working all things for our good when there was a string of years that England bounced between Protestant and Roman Catholic because he used it to mute our tradition's reactionary aspects that other Protestants have not escaped. As we look at our text today, thank you. As we look at our text today, especially the first Corinthians passage, I want to look with you mainly at the term Catholic and how that applies to the church. I think for this line of the creed, most of our questions are related to what Catholic means and how we confess this honestly. But first, we must define our terms. The simplest to start with is the church. Church is from the Greek ekklesia. This is where we get the word ecclesiastical, having to do with the church, and ecclesiology, theology applied to the nature and structure of the church. 
This word, translated, literally means the assembly or the congregation. When we see that word or concept show up in scripture, it is describing the people, not the building or the leadership method. Second term, Catholic. How many of you, and I'm looking for a show of hands, how many of you at some time in your life recited this line in the creed and wondered to yourself why you were confessing faith in the Roman Catholic Church? All right, me too, for many years. If you look carefully at the C in Catholic in the creed, the C is lowercase. That means it's an adjective, not a proper noun, taking you back to uh, high school English. It does not mean Roman Catholic, which is often shortened to Catholic, with a capital C. The adjective Catholic comes from the Greek word Catholikos. Catholikos is a conglomeration of two Greek words. The first is kata, meaning with respect to, and the second, halos, meaning whole. So Catholic, the adjective means with respect to the whole, or simply the universal. When we say this line in the creed, we are agreeing that the people who confess Jesus around the globe in accordance with the scriptures, as attested to by the ancient creeds, are one. They're joined in divisible. Is that hard for you to swallow? We are different traditions spanning a globe wracked by schism, the fracture of which are side effects of reformations and disagreements, different liturgies, languages, and polity. How can such a crude conglomeration be called universal? We confess the church as being universal because of the supremacy of Christ in all things, including as the head of a fractured church. I think the biggest struggle for the common Christian with this is the fact that the reality is so many traditions throughout the church disagree on a myriad of topics, methods, and doctrinal beliefs. In the introduction to his classic popular Christian book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes the basic universal Christian beliefs he presents in that book as a hallway of a house that there are rooms off of. The rooms represent the different traditions in the church, which he says are to be walked into. Being in the hallway must be regarded as a place of waiting, not of camping. He says, you must keep on praying for light, and of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and its paneling. In plain language, it should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door to, due to my pride or my taste or my personal dislike for this particular doorkeeper? We do what do we do with these traditions and the differences between them? Well, first, I want to step back and reframe our thinking about them. In the, this sermon and in my conversations I've had with you, I use the term tradition when discussing these different sections of the church. If you're not quite sure what I'm meaning by that, I'm using it as a term to replace the word denomination. Let me explain why I do this. Denomination means to name, literally. 
However, it has shifted over time to mean the divisions between these sections of the church rather than their differences. These divisions have then been made out to be the identity of them rather than Christ. How does this compare to scripture? Let's look at the Corinthians passage. Starting at the beginning in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink with one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Notice in 1 Corinthians, it's not the nature of giftings or callings that St. Paul points to as their identity and unity, but rather their baptism and common participation in Holy Communion. So what do I mean when I use the word tradition? I mean that tradition is a method by which to live out the Christian life. It is not what makes us Christian. That is belief in Jesus, repentance, baptism, and communion. It is the practical way of living in light of our identity as Christians. Now those differences can be rightly assessed as to whether they are faithfully and robustly pointing to Christ. As Lewis says, we must choose and choose based on what we assess to be true, not what we find pleasing or comfortable. Inevitably, we will look at other traditions and say we don't agree with them on key methods used to live out the Christian life or doctrines they hold. If we did, we wouldn't be in this tradition. However, when these points of disagreement do not center on the core of our faith, on the identity of Christ and our identity in light of his, we must acknowledge them as members of the church and brothers and sisters in Christ by nature of Christ, our common head. What did Paul use as his foundational point for the Corinthians? Baptism, communion, ties to Christ. It is for this reason that Martin Luther, upon beginning the path that would become what we know as the Reformation, did not throw off the Catholic tradition. He still considered himself to be Catholic, tied to Rome. He was just reforming its methods and thinking. He never sought separation or the formation of a different tradition that was forced upon him. I know some of you have dim views of other traditions you have come out of or in contact with. Some of you have been hurt. Some of you have looked at the Anglican tradition and said, I judge this tradition to help me more faithfully and fully live out my Christian life. And so you are here. In the words of Lewis, when you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and those who are still in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if they are your enemies, then you are under orders to pray for them. That is one of the common rules of the whole house. Where you have been hurt, seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Where you have judged a tradition to be inferior in aid as compared to this one, share ours in charity and love that they might benefit also, rather than using it as a club 
to demote your brothers and second sisters to second-class Christians. With the split of the Episcopal Church here in America and the formation of the Anglican Church in North America, I have come across many fellow Anglicans whose condemnation of other traditions is rank with their pride in our tradition. These are not matters of honest judging between two methods saying, I choose the Anglican method since I consider it to be more consistent or faithful to tutor me as I follow Christ. That would be a good judgment with roots that, which roots us in our tradition, roots us by our tradition in our faith. No, these judgments, these are those using another brother's tradition to question and belittle their faith in Christ with little or no basis with regard to the biblical requirements of being a Christian. If you are guilty of that, like I am at times, repent with me. I want to talk with you about one other aspect of the church's Catholic nature in light of our divisions that may not have occurred to you before, but may be affecting you. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, they were dealing with fractions and rifts among their members. Look with me at where Paul goes to when he seeks to deal with their divisions. I'm now starting in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the end, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet. I have need of you, no need of you. <clears throat> On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. It's pointing back to Christ. Christ is the center. Christ is the locus. Paul describes the church as a body made of many members. He recognizes and affirms the fact that we are not all the same. The passage immediately before our reading discusses the spiritual giftings of the church. Not all are gifted in the same manner, and not all are called to the same arenas in which we exercise what St. Paul calls in the fifth chapter of his second epistle to this Corinthian church, the ministry of reconciliation. However, in the midst of our differences, St. Paul is very clear in these verses, and especially in verse 13 we read earlier, that we are united as one body in Christ because of our baptism and our participation in Holy Communion. Are my reasons starting to sound like a broken record? In the broader passage, St. Paul speaks of various giftings in the church. In our own congregation, there are many manifestations of the Spirit in our gifts and callings. We have seen a concern for the poor and the refugees, a robust gifting of music, gifts of prayer and healing, teaching and leadership, just to name a few. If you struggle at time with time or energy our parish spends on areas you do not think important, consider if you have elevated certain gifts and callings over others. Inversely, in love, 
Seek to understand what you feel is imbalanced. Once you understand the area, you may find it necessary to lovingly help others see that they are over-elevating specific gifts and callings. Friends, do not fall, fail to miss the unity of the church and its diversity, and do not use its diversity and call and giftings as an excuse to separate yourself from the church, the body of Christ, but rather to celebrate the care Christ shows for his church. St. Paul reminds us in verse 7 of chapter 12, in this book, that God has given us giftings for the common good. When we forget this, we see niche traditions focused on and emphasizing specific gifts and calls above all others, sometimes to the extent you wonder what exactly they are worshiping. In closing, I must say that I wanted very much to preach on the Old Testament reading as my name text for the sermon. That is, before I read the Old Testament passage. It's important that we all hear preaching out of the Old Testament so that we do not forget it can be rightly called and known as Christian scripture, equal importance to the New Testament because it bears witness to Christ. I'm not sure about you, but when I read the Ezekiel passage, my initial reaction was, huh? I confess that after a good half hour of study of the text, uh, my reaction had not changed much. It's part of a bigger vision in Ezekiel of a new temple in heaven used to show Ezekiel truths concerning the promises, realities, and hope of God's work in and through his people for the fulfillment of his ultimate promise, setting all things right. I didn't use it for my main text, but I want you to pay attention specifically to verse 12. In verse 12, it says... We didn't get to verse 12. <laughs> Hang on a second. Now you get to see how easily I can find Ezekiel. <laughs> Old Testament, thank you. In verse 12, <laughs> it says, And on the banks, this is the river it's talking, flowing from the temple. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fall, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. We took a look today at how the church is Catholic and we barely scratched the surface of that discussion. It isn't always obvious because regardless of the church redeemed state, she still sins. For all of us who bear the pain of being poorly cared for, accused, or belittled by other sections of the church, for all of us whom God has given insight into our unity in Christ and so are pained by the separation felt and maintained between traditions, for all of us who have been perpetrators of inflicting the pain of unfounded judgment, especially when it is in the guise of appropriate consideration of faithful methods of following Christ. This too Christ died for, and this too he has made provisions to address. We see God use this image of a tree given by him for healing in Ezekiel, Revelation. The divides that separate Jesus' body and 
deny our common holiness in God, will be healed. Let me remind you that John tells us in chapter 17 of his gospel, Jesus, our high priest, has given us glory that we all may be one, even as he and the Father are one. Which, though not evident now, is the reality of the church. This is a reality that will be seen with the consummation of all things because of Jesus' supremacy in all things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.